You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratul Nabawiya, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we concluded uh, the major events of the first year of Hijrah. So basically, that means the first year of the Prophet sallallahu residence in the city of Medina. The, we talked about the major events there. Um, there were a number of different things that we covered from the first janazah. Uh, the first couple of janazahs in Medina from both the sides of the Muhajirun, the Ansar, the first uh, couple of births in Medina, uh, again from the side of the Muhajirun and the Ansar. We also talked about the first three military expeditions or campaigns, which the Prophet ﷺ himself did not leave Medina for, but rather he sent the Sahaba out for these three campaigns. They were scouting expeditions and to kind of just secure the area around Medina because there were reports coming in of spies and people who were basically encroaching upon Medina. Along with that, we talked about some other major events, the founding of the Masjid, Al-Masjid al-Nabawi al-Sharif, uh, the institutionalization of the Adhan, the of five times obligatory prayers being done in a collective fashion, the Jama'ah was established. So there were a lot of these major events that took place, and of course we culminated last week by, uh, or last week we had a guest uh, scholar, guest speaker, uh, just talk about the overall uh, objectives of studying the seerah and how to study the seerah and the principles of studying the prophetic biography. But before that, what we talked about chronologically was the Prophet Sallallahu marriage to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha because towards the end of the first year, some scholars of seerah have put it within the beginning of the second year. However, according to the scholars um, of the seerah that we're basically following the chronology of, they talked about at the end of the first year of hijrah, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha goes to live with the Prophet sallallahu and we talked about that. What will we talk what will what we will be talking about today is the beginning of the second year of Hijrah. The second year of the Prophet sallallahu residence in the city of Medina which in, which essentially means this is the second year of the establishment of the Muslim community. So the second year of Hijrah. Now Something very interesting that I found uh, within many of the classical books on Sirah, which are the original sources of the Sirah, that whenever the second year of the Hijrah comes in, they usually start to talk about from there the Maghazi. It's usually titled as Kitabul Maghazi, which basically means the book about military campaigns or expeditions, the Ghazawat. All right. Now, there is kind of a thematic approach that some of them take that while we're here at the beginning of the second year, they go ahead and decide to delve completely into discussing the different military expeditions and campaigns. However, even if we look at it more chronologically and not thematically, what we still find is that the reason why the second year of the Hijrah is dominated by the discussion of different military expeditions and campaigns was simply because the second year, in fact, was primarily highlighted by being a year where there was a lot of military activity. 
There was a lot of military organized activity on, part, on the part of the Muslims and especially on the part of the Quraysh and the, the opposition to Islam. And this same tone kind of continues into the third year, into the fourth year, and the fifth year even. Um, however, at the same time, there were other incidents and events that did occur during the second year. And inshallah, we will be talking about them. But of course, we'll start off by talking about the military expeditions. Now, one, a couple of the terms, some of the terminology that I had discussed a little bit earlier that I'll reiterate here because it becomes relevant once again, is that there are two terms you need to be equated with. And you'll, you'll hear them very commonly mentioned whenever this portion of the seerah is talked about or mentioned. And that is number one, there is the word sariya. Or rather, first let me start with the other one, the word ghazwa. The word ghazwa in the Arabic language, ghazwa, it basically refers to a military expedition in its literal sense, in its very lexical meaning. However, when you talk about, when you use that word in the context of the seerah, it refers to a military expedition in which the Prophet ﷺ personally accompanied the Muslim forces. So a military campaign in which the Prophet ﷺ was also traveling, was a part of the group, is called a ghazwa. The other word that you'll hear is sariya. Sariya, saraya is the plural of it, refers to again, the movement or the moving of a military battalion or contingency, a military expedition, alright? But in Sirah terminology, in Hadith terminology, the word Sariya refers to a military expedition in which the Prophet ﷺ himself did not accompany. It was organized by the Prophet ﷺ, uh, you know, legislated and mandated by the Prophet ﷺ. It was organized by him, the people were recruited by him. He would even go as far as appointing the person that was in charge. He personally would hand the flag to whoever the flag bearer was going to be. He would accompany them outside of Medina. He would walk them out of Medina. And similarly, when they would return back and they would be encamped close to Medina, and they would send the word ahead that basically we've arrived close and we'll be arriving tomorrow morning, the Prophet ﷺ himself would go out of Medina to uh, welcome and escort them back into the city of Medina. So yes, he was very actively involved and then they would issue an entire full report to the Prophet ﷺ of all the happenings, everything that went on in this military expedition campaign. But however, he himself did not travel with them and therefore this is called the Sariya. Linguistically speaking, the two words are interchangeable. And occasionally, occasionally sometimes, you'll find that some scholars of the seerah do kind of use them interchangeably. Occasionally. But for the most part, they stick to this particular terminology. And Ghazwa, where the Prophet ﷺ participated. Sariya, where he did not travel himself. The reason why I re reiterate this terminology is because what we talked about, the three expeditions in the first year of Hijrah, those were Saraya, those were Sariya. Alright, the Prophet ﷺ sent out a group, but he did not go himself. The second year is marked uniquely by the fact that this is the time of the first ghazwa. This is the occasion of the first ghazwa, where the Prophet ﷺ himself accompanied the military expedition. 
Here in the beginning of Kitab al-Maghazi, many of the historians such as Ibn Kathir, Al-Waqidi, Ibn Ishaq, many of them relate some very, very sound ahadith which serve as the foundation for this entire discussion about Maghazi, such as Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, rahimahumallahu ta'ala. Imam Bukhari, in the beginning of his Kitab al-Maghazi, he actually relates this from Ibn Ishaq. He says, أَوَّلُ مَا غَزَى رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم Alright, that he says that the first military expedition that the Prophet ﷺ participated in personally was the campaign of Al Abuwa. Alright, and I'll be talking about this one today. Then he took part in the military campaign of Buat. And thirdly, he took part in the expedition of Ushayra, which also has been mentioned as Usayra. Ushayra and Usayra. Bisin al Muhmala o Bishin al Mu'ajama. It's mentioned by Sin and Sheen both. Alright, due to script, certain some of them put the dots, some did not put the dots. So either way, Ushayra or Usayra, he took part and this was the third one. Along with that, he goes on to narrate from Zayd ibn Arqam. Zayd ibn Arqam, this is of course um, uh, the son of Arqam bin Abil Arqam. So Zayd bin Arqam, he relates from him that he was asked, Zayd was asked, How many military expeditions did the Prophet himself travel for? How many did he partake in himself? He says that he took part in 13, uh, excuse me, 19 military expeditions. Shahida minha sabaasha, and then Zayd bin Arqam himself says, I personally also took part in 17 of them. However, the Prophet took part in uh, 19 military expeditions. Now, Imam Muslim rahimahullah ta'ala and some of, uh, some of the other muhaddithun and historians and scholars of the seerah, they say that there are a lot of different narrations, but it seems to be settled on the fact that the Prophet ﷺ himself took part in 19 military expeditions or campaigns. But he, but there was fighting. There was some type of an exchange of some type of, you know, uh, combat. There was combat in only eight of them. And so this all counters the idea. So if you have 19 expeditions in which the Prophet ﷺ actively took part in in 10 years, now somebody could say that's a lot, but take into account this is talking about even if they traveled outside of Medina for three days. And also what's very fascinating about this is like Hudaybiyah, which was the intention of Umrah, which ends up becoming a treaty, is also classified under the Ghazawat. So it means anytime the Prophet ﷺ traveled in an organized fashion outside of Medina, it's called the Ghazwa. So 19 times in 10 years, during a time of great turmoil and a very active 10 years, is actually not that much. On top of that, add into the add the fact that there was combat of any of any caliber. To any extent, there was combat in only eight of them. So this very actively counters the whole accusation about this is just, these were just a bloodthirsty group of people, warmongering, waging war on all of Arabia. That wasn't the case at all. In fact, the, of the eight that it talks about where there was some extent, some type of combat, some of these were to the extent where maybe there was just like one little confrontation between two people. Like Fatih Makkah, the conquest of Makkah is classified within these eight. Why would the conquest? There wasn't a war. 
They didn't wage war, but what happened was a couple of people were captured here, a couple of people were dispatched over there. There was a little bit of skirmish here, a little bit of skirmish there, or a little confrontation between a couple of people, therefore it's classified amongst the qital, just to that extent. So when you put all the facts together, you find that when you talk about a major war, there was not more than half a dozen. And so these facts are very important to know before we set out on this uh, study of the different ghazawat so that you have all the facts in front of you. The eight that are listed where there was some extent of exchange or combat, they are Badr, Uhud, Ahzab, also known as Khandaq, Muraisiya, Qudayd, Khaybar, Makkah, which would be Fathu Makkah, Hunayn, um, that these are the eight basically. These are the eight in which there was some type of exchange, at least to some extent. Alright? Um, so this, this is kind of an intro to the entire discussion. Now we'll actually go into talking about, uh, we'll go into talk about the very first one. So the very first one that occurred during the life of the Prophet ﷺ during the second year in which the Prophet ﷺ himself took place, was during the month of Safar. This was a month of Safar in the second year. The scholars mentioned that it was exactly 12 months from when the Prophet ﷺ had arrived in the city of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ appointed Sa'ad bin Ubadah. Sa'ad bin Ubadah who was one of the leaders of the Ansar, Sayyidul Khazraj. He was a leader from the tribe of Khazraj. He was also a, one of the original people who had taken the oath of allegiance at the Bay'atul Aqaba on the hands of the Prophet ﷺ. And was also appointed as one of the original 12 Nuqaba. He was one of the original 12 community organizers that the Prophet ﷺ had appointed within the city of Medina even before he came to Medina. Sa'ad bin Ubadah. So this Sa'ad bin Ubadah, he was left in charge of Medina. وَاسْتَعْمَلَ عَلَى الْمَدِينَةِ سَعَدَ بْنُ عُبَادَةِ The Prophet ﷺ put Sa'ad bin Ubadah as the Amir of Medina in his absence. And the Prophet ﷺ, he in this particular uh, expedition, he handed the flag to his uncle Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib. So Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib was carrying the flag of the Muslims, which was a white flag. It was a white flag, so it was a white cloth tied to a stick, and it was held by Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, the uncle of the Prophet. Sa'ad bin Ubadah is in charge, and the Prophet had with him about 60 or 80 people, and they were all from the Muhajirun. Now 60 and 80 is kind of a big number, so it's understanded as somewhere between 60 and 80. Some narrations mention 60, some mention 80. In either case, there was about 60 to 80 people, and they were all from the Muhajirun. So far, there are no Ansar. Now for those of you who might not recall or might not remember, or maybe are just listening in right now, why aren't the Ansar here? The Ansar don't care. The Ansar aren't interested. They're less, are we trying to say they're lesser in Iman? They're not as courageous or brave? Like what could be the reason why the Ansar aren't here? There's 80 people in Ra'a Muhajirun. Where are the Ansar? Why are they MIA? Why are they missing in action? Well, if you recall back, if you remember back, 
the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he made when he sat down with them to arrange his migration and the Muslims' uh, migration to the city of Medina and establish a community in Medina, the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam at that time had discussed the issue with them that if somebody attacks Medina, we will all defend it together. But if we go outside of Medina to engage particularly with the Quraysh, then the Ansar are not obligated to join us. You can if you want to, but you're not obligated. So for the first few expeditions, the Prophet ﷺ actually did not even solicit the Ansar. He did not even put the option on the table. It was almost kind of an exclusive thing where the Prophet ﷺ would tell the Muhajirun, come on everybody get ready, y'all are coming with me. Because the Prophet ﷺ didn't want to put the Ansar in that position. Also understand <coughs> that there can be any doubt to the commitment of the Ansar because the Ansar had hosted the Muslims, had taken them into their homes, had shared their businesses, their money, their wealth, their homes, had shared everything with the Muhajirun. So they were fully invested. There's no doubt about the fact that they were fully invested. But it's the Prophet ﷺ not wanting to put the Ansar in this position this early on into this relationship and this building of this community. So there's great wisdom on the part of the Prophet ﷺ in this regard. Now, so the Prophet ﷺ prepares about 80 individuals from the Muhajirun and they set out from Medina. Why are they even going? What's the reason? What's the cause? So the narrations mentioned that the Prophet of Allah had heard that there was um, that there was a group of the Quraysh that was passing through the region, that was passing by uh, Medina, and the Prophet of Allah went out there to basically just you know confront them, a little bit of a show of force, and let them know that look, we we are home now. We've established ourselves and we won't be bullied here anymore. So I talked about it a couple of sessions ago. I talked about the psychology of this. So the Prophet of Allah takes these people out. Um, and when they get out to a place called Waddan, until he reached a place called Waddan, which was also referred to as by, by some of the locals as Al-Abwa. It was also referred to as Abwa. And that's why this Ghazwa is called the Ghazwa of Waddan. And some scholars refer to it as the Ghazwa of Al-Abuwa. So if you teach, see two names, Waddan and Abuwa, don't be confused. It's not two campaigns. It's the one and the same. It's just some people call that area Waddan. Some people refer to it as Abuwa. Alright? And the, the place of Abuwa has occurred one place in the Sirah before. I mean, it's probably not really fair to ask. But if anybody does remember the place of Abuwa, where it has occurred before. Right. The mother of the Prophet ﷺ, this was the area where she had passed away. And where she was buried. It was at the place of Al-Abuwa. So this is Waddan Abuwa, they reached there. And when they got there, they basically find out that the Quraysh, the, 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 the caravan of the Quraysh has already passed. So the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, he basically returned back to Medina. Um, and so the, the books of history say that even though the, the caravan of the Quraysh had passed on by, they had missed the caravan, the Prophet ﷺ still stayed there for 15 days. He camped out there for 15 days. Why did he camp out there for 15 days? The enemy is gone, they've passed by. 
There's no threat, there's no nothing. Why are you just camped out there for 15 days? Now the Prophet ﷺ, we realize that the Prophet ﷺ had another objective. Part of the objective was to also familiarize himself and the community and start building relationships and ties with the A'rab. With the Bedouin tribes that lived outside of Medina and on the path from Mecca to Medina. He started building ties with them. And in fact, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, during this trip, he also met with some of the members of Banu Damra. Banu Damra, the Prophet ﷺ met with some of them and he let them know that, look, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear from us. We have no beef with you. We will not fight you. We will not encroach upon you. That's not our objective. And in fact, if somebody attacks you, we'll come to your aid. So the Prophet ﷺ started building alliances and allegiances in this manner. And so they basically returned back after 15 days, and they returned back to Medina. Now the, the books of history talk about that after this particular um, experience or journey or expedition, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, the next uh, campaign or expedition or the next uh, you know, venturing out of Medina, was in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. Was in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. So the first one was in Safar. And now in Rabi'ul Awwal. So that means the Prophet ﷺ returned back. And not after too long, he again told the Muslims to gather together. And this particular time, the Prophet ﷺ took 200 people with him. He took 200 people with him. And at this time, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ put there are two narrations. One of the narrations says, he put Sa'ad bin Mu'adh. Sa'ad bin Mu'adh was another leader of the Ansar. He was the chief of Aus. He was the chief of the Aus tribe. And he was, again, you know, somebody who had accepted Islam at the hands of Musa bin Umair, was a staunch supporter of the Prophet and the Muslims and a firm believer. And in fact, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh would play a very vital, very important role in the seerah and in the community of Muslims in Medina going forward from here. So the Prophet put Sa'ad bin Mu'adh um, in charge of the city of Medina in his absence. That is what Al-Waqidi mentions. Ibn Hisham, rahimahullah ta'ala, Another historian and scholar of the seerah, he actually says, and Ibn Ishaq says the same thing, that no, the Prophet ﷺ put Sa'ib bin Uthman bin Mad'un. Sa'ib bin Uthman bin Mad'un in charge of Medina. So in either case, either which way it was, the Prophet ﷺ put one of the Ansar in charge of the city of Medina. Now how do you reconcile that? How do you have two sound narrations? One says Sa'ib bin Uthman was in charge of Medina. One says Sa'ad bin Mu'ad was in charge of Medina. In either case, they must have been making shura or counsel with one another. So some people just saw the two of them talking about things together, or sitting together, or you know, running things together. So some people narrated that it was one, some people narrated that it was the other. In either case, the lesson that you actually learn from here is that when the Prophet ﷺ appointed somebody to be in charge in his absence, that person understood that I am not the Messenger wasallam. I am not the Messenger wasallam. I don't receive divine revelation. Meaning what? If the Prophet ﷺ, Muhammad Rasulullah ﷺ, the one who receives divine inspiration, revelation, he never makes a decision without consulting the companions. He's always engaged in consultation and shura. Then what about me? I don't receive divine revelation. So how can I be making a decision without consulting anyone? So that kind of shows you that consultation and shura was a 
was a very important consideration. And it was instituted and, and, and um, it was something that was instilled within the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So in either case, the Prophet ﷺ now travels outside of Medina with 200 people. The flag is being held this time, and again, it's a white flag. It's being held by Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And again, there's a caravan of the Quraysh that is passing by Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ wants to intercept this caravan and wants to, you know, just make a display or a show of some type of defense or some type of force, right? That necessarily, it wasn't the intention of the Prophet ﷺ to raid the caravan, but at the same time to just kind of march up there, line up 200 people and just kind of stand there like, look, you can pass by here. But just in case you were thinking about a little excursion or a side, you know, little um, trip, then you should know that we're here. And we will defend our city, we will defend our homes, right? And so the narrations mentioned that Umayyah bin Khalaf was passing by with a hundred men. And they had a huge caravan of 2,500 camels, 2,500 camels. And there was a, a hundred men with Umayyah bin Khalaf, and they were passing by. So the Prophet ﷺ again reaches the place of Buat. He reaches the place of Buat. And again, there was, um, there was no type of confrontation, there was no type of exchange or any type of combat. And the Prophet ﷺ returned back. Um, the, person, the Prophet ﷺ returned back to the city of Medina almost immediately. They were not gone for very long in this particular expedition and campaign. Now when the Prophet ﷺ returns back to the city of Medina, he's there in the city of Medina for, we'll say, about a month or a month and a half. And the pro in that particular time, in the month of Rabi'ul uh, Akhar, he's in the city of Medina. Into the month of Jumad al Awwal, the Prophet ﷺ is still in the city of Medina, at which point in time the Prophet of Allah ﷺ leaves Medina once again for what is now called the expedition of Ushayra. The expedition of Ushayra, and some call it the expedition of Usayra, in either, way, in either case. In this particular expedition, the Prophet ﷺ leaves Abu Salama. Abu Salama bin Abdul Asad. This is the famous Abu Salama who had migrated to the city of Medina along with his wife Ummu Salama, right? And their son Salama, they have that epic story, that really heart-gripping story where all three of them are separated as they tried to leave the city of Medina. And eventually they're reunited after a year and they migrate to the city of Medina. They make their way to Medina. Abu Salama goes ahead and Ummu Salama along with their son arrives a year later and the family is reunited. Now Abu Salama and Ummu Salama Salama and you know this family, especially Abu Salama, they accepted Islam back in the early days of Mecca. And he was a very, very firm believer. He was a very dedicated community member. And he was somebody who had the trust and the confidence of the Prophet ﷺ. Because especially everything that he had been through. So this time the Prophet ﷺ leaves Abu Salama in charge of the city of Medina. Now what are you already noticing here? Abu Salama is a muhajir. Who did the Prophet ﷺ leave in charge in Medina the first couple of times? And Ansari, because that was something that was very, that was something that they were familiar with. Okay, fine, Sa'ad bin Ubadah, he's already one of our leaders. He was our leader even before Islam. 
Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, he was one of our leaders before Islam. Now, slowly, so this teaches us a couple of lessons. The methodology of the Prophet ﷺ in instituting change was that change doesn't happen overnight. Change does not happen overnight, should not be done overnight. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ tells Aisha anha when he talks about restructuring the Kaaba, he says that لَوْلَا حَدِيثُ قَوْمِكِ لَوْلَا حَدِيثُ عَهْدِ قَوْمِكِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ Right, that if, if your people, meaning the Quraysh, the Meccans, were not so new to Islam at the time of Fatima Makkah, he's saying, if they were not so new to Islam, I would have changed some of the construction of the Kaaba to its original form that was founded at the time of Ibrahim alayhi salam. I would have changed it. But I am not changing it because your people are too new. Right? We all know about the, the, the very famous case study that we do in Ulum al-Qur'an and Usul al-Fiqh of how the prohibition of alcohol, of wine, of khamar was legislated. It was a progression. It was a process. And that's why Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha even comments by saying that if on the very first day the revelation came, if the, if the ayah would have come that wine is prohibited, nobody would have complied. But in fact, it came after developing their ability to implement it. So she says, what happened? She says that if you were there on that day, you would witness wine flowing in the streets of Medina. Nobody negotiated, nobody asked the question, well, can I sell it to a non-Muslim? Can I at least do with it? Can I water my garden with it? Like, there were no questions. Right? But they basically just took it and just tossed it. They flushed it. They uh, washed it down the drain. Because I'm not interested. So we see that the Prophet ﷺ had this very subtle yet effective methodology. Right? Sometimes in our, in our zeal, we're very motivated, we're very inclined towards initial change. Right? We just want to cause change overnight. We want to change it. Right? And, and, and this is the nature of haqq though. This is nature of the truth. If you've lived in the darkness for so long, and then you find the light, you, you, all you want to do more than anything else is you want to show everyone else this light. You want everyone else to come on in. But what we have to understand is that this comes with a responsibility. And the responsibility is preaching. And we preach according to the methodology of Muhammad Rasulullah which is called Nahjun Nubuwa. Manhajun Nubuwa, Nahjun Nubuwa. You have to follow the prophetic model and prophetic methodology. And that is one that is gradual, one that is process oriented, one that is patient, subtle, yet effective. And that's what the Prophet did was to create, to completely break down all barriers and create full, implement full integration. The Prophet starts off by first implementing leadership within the Ansar and then slowly transitions it over to. Abu Salama. And again, who is Abu Salama? I, I, this is very important. See, these are, the, these are the nuances in the seerah that we do not study. There were young people. There were the Musa bin Umairs and the Ali bin Abi Talibs. The very young, dynamic, energetic, uh, talented, qualified individuals. But he didn't appoint a young man. He didn't appoint a young buck, young, young up and coming. Right? Because we're talking about leadership here. The Prophet ﷺ implemented and instilled and put in a position of leadership Abu Salama. Abu Salama is somebody who's a little bit older. He's a married man. He's a father. He has a child. He migrated, lost his family, and still migrated in spite of that. He's been Muslim since the early days in Mecca. Meaning what? He's got street cred. He's got some credibility. 
He's got experience, right? And that makes that that again inspires confidence. So there's great wisdom in the in in this in this strategy of Muhammad Rasulullah and we can learn a lot from this. We can learn a lot from this. I know, and, and the reason why I'm emphasizing this so much is so often we talk about how important it is to hand over the reins. The younger generation, hand over the reins. And trust me, I'm a huge proponent of that. That's basically what we do. Why, why do we train khatibs? Why do we have the seminary? Why do we do all of this? It's to train young leadership. To hand over the reins. Having said that, we can't ignore the other part of the equation. At the same time, experience is extremely valuable. In fact, experience is irreplaceable. There is no replacement. The Arabs have a proverb, Salil Mujarrab Walata Salil Hakim. Ask someone with experience. Don't go and ask somebody who knows a lot. Because if you just know a lot, you know a lot. MashaAllah, congratulations, Mubarak. You've read 18,000 books, right? But if you've been through it, then as we used to say, been there, done that. Experience. That teaches you something else. And we see, this is not the first time this is coming up. When the Prophet ﷺ first time sent somebody to go and preach and teach Islam in the city of Medina, Yathrib at that time, who did he send? Again, this was quite some time back. I don't know if you remember, Musa bin Umayr is the famous one everyone knows. Did he send Musa bin Umayr by himself? No, he did not. Who did he send with Musa bin Umair? Huh? Right, Abdullah bin Ummi Maktoum. Abdullah ibn Ummi Maktoum radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was a blind man, but more importantly, he was an elderly man. And he had been Muslim since the early days in Mecca. So he, spent, he sent the senior, experienced mentor, and along with him then sent the young, passionate, talented preacher. But he didn't just send the young preacher out there. Right? Because that's... At, I mean, this is Musa bin Umayr, so we can't say that about this case. But just theoretically sending out the young preacher by himself, that's, that's asking for trouble. That's trouble waiting to happen. Alright? So he sent the, young, the old, experienced, tempered mentor along with him. So this is the strategy in the philosophy of the Prophet ﷺ. Anyways, so the Prophet ﷺ sends out towards Ushayra, and he leaves uh, Abu Salama in charge. Again, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ is carrying the flag. And again, they're going out to basically intercept a caravan of the Quraysh that is um, on its way to Bilad al-Sham. And Bilad al-Sham is of course that greater region that is called the Levant, greater Syria, that broader region, Jordan, Palestine, all of these areas are within that region. So he sends them out that way, uh, they're, they're headed out that way, and the Prophet ﷺ goes out there to intercept them. And this time, the Prophet ﷺ along with him, the Prophet ﷺ along with him has 150 of the Muhajirun. 150 of the Muhajirun. And on this journey, the, 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 the caravan of the Quraysh is being led by Abu Sufyan ibn Harb. And along with him are about 20 some odd men. There's about 20 some odd men. But there's something very interesting going on here. There's something kind of fishy here. 
What's fishy over here is that the books of history recall, and even some of the um, Quraysh, like the narrations from some of the people that were in Mecca, that were, that were still with the Quraysh at that time, who later accepted Islam, they mentioned this, every single home of Mecca had sent money with this group. These were 20 of the top businessmen, the top leaders, the 20 most well-connected men of Quraysh. So it's kind of fishy. 20 of the most well-connected men and leaders and businessmen of Quraysh. And they were carrying a lot of money with them. Basically every single home. In fact, some of the narrations say that خَرَجَ قُرَيْشْ بِأَعْظَمِ عِيرٍ لَهَا فَقَدْ جَمَعُوا فِيهَا أَمْوَالَهُمْ حَتَّى لَمْ يَبَقَى بِمَكَّةَ قُرَشِيٌ أَوْ قُرَشِيَّةٌ لَهَا مِثْقَالٌ فَصَاعِدًا إِلَّا بَعَثَ بِهِ فِي تِلْكَ الْعِيرِ Every single Qurayshi man and every single Qurayshi woman who had money to their name had sent money with these people. There was some type of a major fund or a major investment that was going on over here. And we would actually find out later on that part of the purpose of this fund was to go there, invest this money, make a lot of money, double, triple the money to be used to start developing a war fund, a military fund back in Mecca. They were gonna start building their department of defense. All right, that was the strategy here. And so the Prophet ﷺ again goes out with 150 men to intercept them. When they reach out to the place of Ushayra, they find out that the, the caravan has already passed by. So once again, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ ends up staying in the region for a little while longer. And remember we had talked about Banu Damra, Along with them was Banu Mudlaj. That was another tribe that lived near Banu Damra. The Prophet ﷺ on this particular trip formalized the agreement with Banu Damra. They took a hilf, means they made a pact and an oath with one another. That we will defend you and you will defend us. Along with that because Banu Damra complied, now Banu Mudlaj also sit down with the Prophet they're also motivated, and they also enter into an agreement and a pact with the Muslims. You will defend us and we will defend you. And so the Prophet basically um, established this treaty and this, um, this, this, this agreement with them. There's an interesting story that is um, mentioned over here about this journey. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that while we were out and we were camped out at that place near Banu Mudlaj and we were having these negotiations and these terms with them so we were there for a little while um, and so there was not much to do we were just kind of sitting and waiting and they were talking about terms and finalizing all the terms so he says that I started getting really really sleepy Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu says I became extremely sleepy started dozing off Right, so he says that I went. I saw this date palm. I saw a I saw a nakhal, a date palm, like a tree. And I went under the shade of the tree, lied down on the dirt, and it was all dirt on the ground. And I lied down on that dirt and went to sleep. I passed out. Went to sleep. Now he says that a little while later, I guess it was time to go or time to finalize the agreement or whatever it was. So the Prophet ﷺ is looking for me. 
So he says, he comes over there and he finds me sleeping. And he says that, مَا أَحَبَّنَا إِلَّا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ The Prophet kind of started tapping me with his foot. I was sleeping, passed out on the ground under the tree. And the Prophet came and started tapping me with his foot. I kind of just playfully waking me up. And again, it, it, this, this type of stuff humanizes the Prophet Shows you the kind of relationship that he had. He wasn't a dictator, he wasn't authoritarian, he wasn't, you know, just this really fearful ruler. But the Prophet was tapping him with his foot, waking him up. He says, so I was so sleepy, I sat up. And when I sat up, there was all this dirt stuck to the side of my body. And he says that the Prophet ﷺ says to me, Ya Aba Turab. Ya Aba Turab. He called me, O father of dirt. Right, because I had all this dirt stuck to my body. But then he says that, then the Prophet said, said something very interesting to me. He says that, Allah He said, Let me tell you about the two most wretched human beings that will ever walk the face of this earth. Let me tell you about Ashqa, Shaqi, Ashqa, Ashqa Nas. Let me tell you about the most two most wretched human beings that will, that have or will ever walk this earth. Number one, we said, "Qulna balaya Rasulullah." We said, "Of course, O Messenger of God, please inform us." He said, first one is Uhaymir, Uhaymir Thamud al-Ladhi Akranaka." He said, "The very handsome man, Uhaymir." Describing, it, it was a term that would be used to kind of describe like a handsome person. He said, Uhaymir, the very handsome man from the tribe of Thamud that struck down the Naqa, the she-camel, you know the miraculous she-camel? That was a miracle that Salih salam presented to his people, the she-camel that emerged from the mountain. And he said that don't mess with the she-camel. Leave the she-camel. This is a miracle of God. You ask for it, you got it, I'll leave it. naqata. But what they did, what did they do? They killed the she-camel. The one who actually did it, who struck the she-camel, that is the first amongst the two most wretched human beings that will ever walk the face of this earth. Because that was a miracle of God. That was a miracle. And he struck it down without any regard or any reverence or any respect. He didn't just not believe, he, he killed it, he murdered it. All right? And then the second one, the Prophet ﷺ says, "Well, well, well, wathani, wathani." The second one, "Alladhi yadribuka ya Ali, alladhi yadribuka ala ya Ali ala hadhihi, wa wada Rasulullah ﷺ yadahu ala rasihi." The Prophet ﷺ says that the second most wretched human being is the one that will strike you, will kill you, ya Ali, and he will strike you here on your head. And he pointed to his head. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, "Hatta yabulla minha hadhi." He says, "Until so much so that this will become wet. He will strike you here, and this will become soaked." Meaning, the Prophet ﷺ said, "He will strike you a death blow on your head, and you will bleed so profusely from your head that it will soak your beard with blood." Meaning, it's. He's saying that he'll kill you. So the two most wretched human beings that ever walked the face of this earth is number one, the man who killed that she-camel that was a miracle. And number two, the man that will kill you, Ya Ali. 
Alright? Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, after mentioning this particular narration, narrated by Ibn Ishaq, he says that there in Sahih Bukhari, in Sahih Bukhari, the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, this narration, meaning the, the nickname of Abu Turab, the part of the narration where Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu is given the nickname Abu Turab, had a different occasion. Imam Bukhari mentions a different occasion, which is also very interesting. He basically mentions that Anna Aliyan radiallahu ta'ala anhu kharaja mughadiban Fatima. Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anha, the wife of Ali, the daughter of the Prophet And Ali and Fatima are husband and wife, right? They had a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a disagreement. They had a little bit of a disagreement. So Ali radiallahu ta'ala got really upset, got really angry. And he stormed out of the house. Sound familiar? Right? So he stormed out of the house, really upset. Except when they would get really upset, they wouldn't go to some other place. He went to the masjid and he laid down and went to sleep in the masjid. He came to the masjid and he laid down and went to sleep. The Prophet went to the house to go visit Ali, Fatima, Hassan, Hussein, his family. He went to go visit them. And Ali's not there. And usually this is evening time. Everybody's home. He asked, Ya Fatima, Ya Bunayati, Oh beloved daughter, where's your husband? Where's Ali? So she said, فَقَالَتْ خَرَجَ مُغَادِبًا Right? He got angry, so he went out. فَجَائِلَ الْمَسْجِدِ So the Prophet ﷺ, now look at this, she says he got mad and he left. The Prophet ﷺ went straight to the masjid, because he knew Ali only goes to the masjid. If Ali's at, at, not at home, then he's at the masjid. If he's not at the masjid, he's at home. Right? So he knew he'd be at the masjid. فَجَائِلَ الْمَسْجِدِ فَأَيْقَدَهُ so the Prophet came to the masjid and woke up Ali radiallahu like, wake up, wake up youngin, let's talk, right? Let's talk about this. So he woke him up. وَجَعَلَ يَمْسَحُ التُّرَابَ عَنْهُ And so Ali radiallahu was sleeping on the ground in the masjid. And uh, if you remember, we talked about the masjid of the Prophet Later on, somebody would come and put pebbles on the ground. But prior to that, the masjid was what? It was dirt. The ground of the masjid was the dirt. So Ali radiallahu is laying down, so when he gets up, he's got dirt all over him from laying down in the masjid. The Prophet started removing the dirt from Ali radiallahu Like the love, the affection he had for him. He started cleaning him and removing the dirt from him. And he starts saying, come on, come on, stand up, stand up Abu Turab, stand up Abu Turab. Father of dirt, father of dirt, right? Like stand up, stand up, let's go. He was going to take him back home and, you know, patch things up. And so the, Imam Bukhari mentions this narration to say that that is when Ali radiallahu got his nickname of Abu Turab. However, the, re, the reason why Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala brings both, the reconciliation is very easy. It's very plausible because at the time of Ushayra, the military campaign that we're talking about, Ali radiallahu had not been married to Fatima yet. So it could be that the first time the Prophet ﷺ referred to him as Abu Turab was at Ushayra in the military expedition. And then later on when this little 
event or incident is taking place, he's just referring to him because now it's his established nickname. Endearingly, lovingly, the Prophet ﷺ refers to Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu, his cousin, his son-in-law, as Abu Turab, father of dirt. Alright, so this, these were the first three military campaigns and expeditions. Ghazawat, which if you remember the terminology means, the Prophet ﷺ himself participated in these and traveled for these. And they were not without fruit, but two objectives were accomplished. Number one, it sent a very clear message to the Quraysh, we will defend our home. And number two, it also served as a means of establishing now treaties and agreements and alliances with the Bedouin tribes that lived around Medina and on the road, on the path between Mecca and Medina. And excuse me, there's a third benefit. The third benefit was the Prophet ﷺ is training leadership. See, we also have to understand one thing. The passing on of the torch, the passing on of the baton, doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not that the leader just dies one day and then the next person like, you know, the clouds part and the line shines down. Ah, and then the person rises up and now he's the leader. Right? That's not how it happens. Not like somebody dies and like some little glowing force comes out of him and goes and finds the next leader and enters into him and now he's the leader. Right? Ridiculous ideas. I've seen too many cartoons, right? But that's not the way it works. This is, this, is a, this is a strategic. What do they call this in the business world? What do they call this in business strategy? Succession, succession planning. Leadership succession planning. This is a succession plan. And the Prophet had a plan. He had a strategy for succession. Leadership succession. It didn't happen by itself. It didn't happen coincidentally. He started training some of the Ansar to lead. Now he's training the Muhajirun to lead the Ansar. How do you lead, not your, okay, leading your own people is difficult. How do you lead another group of people? He's, all, he's practicing it from now. He's giving them the practice from now. That's why the day the Prophet ﷺ left this world, the ummah did not miss a beat. Yes, it was traumatized, it was very sad, we lost the Messenger ﷺ, but the ummah continued on. The Sahaba kept doing, kept doing what they were told to do, what they were taught to do. It didn't just crash, it didn't come down. The Prophet started training leaders from that very point on. Inshallah, we'll go ahead and pause here and we'll continue from here uh, next week, inshallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything we've said and heard. And may, the, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make the seerah, the life of the Prophet a means of guidance and a means of learning and a means of education and inspiration for us. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.